You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Demetrius White on Sunday, December 27, 2020 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. God and Father, we come once again before your throne, your throne of grace, that we may hear from you once again concerning the truths of your word. We want to know how to engage your word. We want to know how to apply it to our lives. So, Father, we ask the Holy Spirit to help us today understand the things that are being said. Holy Spirit, quicken our wills to obey your word. Open our eyes that we may see God in the word. Help us by opening opening our ears that we may hear your word. Help me, Holy Spirit, as I preach, as I teach, to encourage your people in these matters. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Here at Redemption Hill, we aren't accustomed to giving sermon titles to sermons, and yet today, we have one. I have one that has been assigned. Why the Bible? I don't want to help you today understand why we need the Bible. I want to give you three things. I want to help you by providing you with an exhortation. I want you to know why you should read this book and why it should be a part of your everyday life. I want to give you an explanation. I want to explain to you how to read the Bible or provide you with simple strategies on how to engage it. And lastly, I want to provide you with an application, how to use the Bible after you read it for a more fruitful communion with God. So three simple things, nothing extensive, an exhortation, an explanation, and an application. A few weeks ago, Raymond Goodlett did a sermon, and he talked about how professional athletes use the basics or the fundamentals of their sports to get better. What we're going over today are the basics or the fundamentals of how to engage the Bible. And as we engage these things, if we engage them on a daily basis, on a regular basis, you'll find that your spiritual strength is increased. Communion with God is established, and your powers of discernment are enhanced. So let me start with my first point, an exhortation. Here's a question everyone must answer today. You must answer this question. Why must you read the Bible? And why should it be a part of your everyday life? Number one is a simple thing, because it discloses the nature, character, and being of God. You must read the Bible on a daily basis because by reading the Bible, you come into a fruitful knowledge of who God is. Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God. The first verse of the Bible introduces us to God and discloses his promises made and his promises fulfilled. The Bible tells us how God thinks, acts, feels, what he loves, what he hates, and what his ultimate plan for humanity is and the universe. 
It is the Bible and the Bible alone that reveals to us who God is. Let me ask you a question. How do you feel about God? Okay? Depending on how you feel about God reveals how much you're either engaging the word of God or your lack thereof. Do you have harsh thoughts of him? Do you have low thoughts of him? Do you feel that the God of Scripture is distant from you? That is not what Scripture says of him. And I want to give you a few Scriptures, not a ton, just a few, to help you see the type of God the Bible relays to us. In Jeremiah 31, verse 20, Israel is going through a terrible time. Nebuchadnezzar is breathing down their necks. Zedekiah is rebelling. The nation is in disarray. And what does God say? Does God say, I want to strike them down? Does God say, I want to spew forth wrath upon them? No, this is what he says. He sees Israel in distress and he says that his heart yearns for them. In Isaiah 63, verse 9, he says this of Israel. Because of their toil with sin, because of their disobedience, because of the situation that they have put themselves in because of their sin. This is what God says. In all of their suffering, he also suffered. And he personally rescued them. What an amazing verse. God is saying that he cares, that he is actively engaged in the lives of his people. You see, we've heard that old heresy of Marcion, haven't we? Some of you are like, I don't know who that is. Well, Marcion was a heretic in the early church. And he said that the God of the Old Testament was different from the God in the New Testament. And you may not have heard of his name, but that is prevalent in Christianity today. Because when people argue against the existence of God and the being of God, the first thing that they bring up are all of these cataclysmic events in the Old Testament. Well, that lets me know one thing, that these people have not read the Bible. Because if you take thousands of years, the thousands of years that are meted out in the Old Testament, those cataclysmic events are so small. And God displays his mercy time and time again. But this is common in Western Christianity, that the God of the Old Testament is this vindictive giant. He's just like you, but bigger, and he wants to destroy you. And it's totally opposite of what the Bible presents of God. You know, I was thinking as I was reading and studying this, I was thinking about Jonah. Jonah came to my mind, right? And, you know, Jonah gets on a boat. He flees from God's command to go to Nineveh. He does not want to go to Nineveh. Why? Because he knows something about God to be true of his nature, character, and being. He knows something. He knows that this God is something else. And this is what he says. God gets him, puts him in a fish. 
the fish spits him out in the right direction, and he goes and he does what he's supposed to do. And what do the Ninevites do? A people who skinned people alive and hung their flesh over a wall. What do they do? They repent. And this is what Jonah says about God. And he's, you know, I can only imagine. Maybe he's furious. Maybe he's arguing with God. But I am amazed at the compassion of God with this man. Because if I were God, he would have been a grease spot talking to me like this. But here's, here's God. Here's, here's Jonah. He says, you know what? And Jonah 4.2, he says, this is why I didn't want to go to Nineveh. I know you. I'm paraphrasing. I know you. I know who you are. This is in the Old Testament now. I know what kind of God you are. You are gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from what? Disaster. Read it and weep. You've been told all of your lives that the God of the Old Testament is a vindictive giant. And right here in the Old Testament, a prophet says, I know you, and I know what you're going to do with these people. You're going to forgive them, and you're going to have grace and mercy upon them. Behold your God. Behold your God. But isn't God a God of wrath? He is. Jonah did not say that God is not angry at sin, or, nor does he not punish sin. What he says is this, is that God's natural disposition is to be slow to anger and quick in mercy. It's the reason why atheists walk around blaspheming God. It's the reason why people in church can live like a devil's hell sometime and not get squashed. Why? God is quick in mercy and slow to anger. I use the Old Testament on purpose to show you that. Because I want you to know that the God of the Bible is wonderful. And if you read the scripture and you engage the scripture, you will find this to be true of God. You will be like David. Oh, Lord, let me taste and see that you are good. What does he do to Adam and Eve? Does he kill them in the garden? No. They tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. And God, we don't know what kind of animal it was, but he slays an animal and he covers them with the animal's skin. And God is showing us in the Old Testament what he's going to do with us, that our righteousness, which are just filthy rags, he's going to slay the lamb the lamb that was slain from before the foundation of the world, and he's going to cover us with his righteousness. That is who God is, slow to anger, quick in mercy. And God shows his grace and mercy more so in the cross. God shows us that he loves us by sending his only begotten son. He does something greater than what he does with Jonah. He doesn't send Jonah. He sends his son to call us to repentance. To not only call us to repentance, but to die for our sins. This is the God of Scripture. The same God of love in the Old Testament is the same God of love in the New Testament. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And this is the nature of God. So you must read the Bible, number one, because it reveals to us the nature, character, and being of God. Number two, the Bible sanctifies us. The Bible sanctifies us. It reveals God. As we're seeing God, we are transformed. The Bible in turn sanctifies us. Psalm 119 verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to his word. Psalm 119.11. I have hid your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Jesus says this of the word. Your word is truth. Sanctify them with your truth. You see, the Word of God is the means that He uses to sanctify us. You know, I remember years ago, I was reading through the book of Jeremiah. And man, my wife said she came into the living room, she said, are you okay? I was trembling. But I was looking at what this nation went through because of sin. And I said to myself, what a terrible thing sin is. But it was the word of God that changed my attitude towards sin. It sanctifies us. You know, Moses went into the mount and he sat with God. And he came back in glory. Many of us don't even spend five minutes with God at the fire of his word. And that's why we have no glory. That's why we have no spiritual strength. That is why people are falling to all types of besetting sins. Why? Simple reason. You are not engaging the Word of God. D.L. Moody once said, The Bible will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from the Bible. What do you find yourself wrestling with today? Huh? Some besetting sin you don't want to tell anyone about. The Word of God is the power of God unto salvation. And it has the power to sanctify you and free you of your sin. Engage it. The Word of God grants us, here's another thing, the powers of discernment. I'm not talking about this weird thing where you're seeing ghosts and all of that stuff, okay? I'm talking about real discernment. The Word of God grants us discernment. In a world with many voices, worldviews, opinions, and messages from both the secular world and the ever-so-dangerous religious world, which pervades American Christianity, how are we to stay safe? Okay? Psalm 119, 105. Your Word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. The Word of God guides and illuminates us on the narrow path. And John Bunyan's immortal classic, Christian, was going through the valley of the shadow of death. He couldn't see anything. He was terrified. But then he got the light of God's word, and he could see his enemy, and he knew what it was he had to do. You see, that's what the word of God does for us as we're walking in the valley of the shadow of death. It gives us clear vision of who our enemy is the world, the devil, and the flesh, and it gives us insight and power on what to do, how to do it, and it empowers us to do it. A few years ago, one of my co-workers gave me a book. She said, hey, 
Demetrius, I want you to read this book. This thing is so amazing. So I took the book, and I looked at the cover of the book, and I knew I was in for a stem winder. Huh? I'm not going to tell you what the name of the book is because I don't want you to get it. It's heretical. But I took this book home, and I opened it, and I didn't even get through the first chapter. Because in the book, I, I, I found out that I had to pinpoint a specific demon. I had to bind him. Then I had to bind his strong man. And then I had to lose something from heaven. I don't know what it was, but I had to lose something from heaven. I took the book. I closed it. I put it in my work bag. And the next day, I took it back. She says, wow. What's wrong? That was fast. I said, I can't read this book because it's not in line with this book. I cannot read this book because it is not in line with this book. How so? Well, Colossians 2.15 tells me that Jesus has already spoiled principalities and powers and demonic entities. I don't have to go into high places. I don't have to recant some special prayer. I don't have to find some strong man or some special demon. The scriptures don't tell me to do that. What it does tell me is that Jesus has spoiled principalities and powers. What it does tell me is that these same principalities and powers are no better than the footstool to the absolute sovereign ruler of the universe in Ephesians chapter 1. That's all they are to him. What it does tell me, because they are bound, because they are defeated, I am free. And I am free to go out and preach the gospel to those that are lost. Satan has no right to stop me. You see, when you engage the word of God like this, you are able to cut through so much. And this is why I tell my kids and my family, read the word of God, man. Because when you have some parking lot prophet and some sidewalk sorcerer come to you and say, hey, this is what the Lord told me. Well, this is what the Lord told me. He gave me 66 books. They're all filled with words. And he speaks to me every day. Well, Demetrius, I want to hear God audibly. Well, read the word of God audibly. Read it out aloud. And you can hear God audibly. But for me and my family, this is it for us. And you can't discern error. This stuff that is going on in our nation, I can assure you, Raymond and I, every Wednesday night, are teaching our high schoolers. And I've boiled it down. Everything falls into five categories. What people think about God. What people think about man. What people think about Christ. Huh? What people think you have to do to be saved. And where all of this is going. And if you take the biblical worldview and match it up to their worldview, it falls short. The Christian worldview is way greater than what they have to offer. And it's true. You see, we must know the word of God 
And I said this in a previous sermon. You can go back and listen to it in 2 Timothy. I think 2 Timothy did a sermon on 2 Timothy here. But I said, if you read the word of God, I promise you, it will keep you from being hoodwinked, bamboozled, and even snookered. It will. It will keep you. Okay? Now, the word of God, we should read it. Here's the exhortation. Read the word of God because it introduces you to God. It increases personal holiness. It offers you the tools of discernment. And here's the explanation. We read Psalm 93, and here's a quick explanation. Okay? We just discovered several good reasons why we should read the Bible. But here... In our text, we have to ask a few questions. When we're engaging the Word of God, when we're reading the Word of God, we want to ask questions of the Word of God. This is a living book. It speaks back to you. Ask it questions. And the first question that we must ask is, what is this text telling me about God? What, another one, ask this question. How is this passage calling me to action and repentance? Here's another one. How is Jesus highlighted in this text? How is he directly represented or pointed to? How does the text highlight my need for Jesus? Now, in looking at Psalm 93, we come to this first question. We must ask the text, what is it telling us about God? What kind of God is this that we're dealing with? Number one, it says here in verse one, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. We're going to stop there. This text is telling me something about God. It's telling me that he is an absolute sovereign, that he is king and no other. It is telling me, Demetrius, as I read it and studied it, Demetrius, you cannot be the king of your life. I am king. And if I will not be king in your life, I will be nothing. And the same goes for you. The Lord is a king. Not only is he a king, but notice here that he reigns exclusively. He reigns alone. He doesn't need my help. He doesn't need your help. Isn't that amazing? He reigns exclusively. Notice here, notice here, the Lord reigns. Notice That it does not say, reigns alone. Notice it doesn't say that he reigns with man's spiritual beings. It does not say he reigns with communists, republicans, democrats, or aristocrats. His reign is exclusive to him. And that's good news for me. Because I don't have to reign and control everything. I can look to a sovereign God. Doesn't mean I don't do anything, but I can look to a sovereign God to help me do what needs to be done. I want you to notice here that his reign is a present one. This text tells us that God is reigning presently. I want you to notice the verb tense here. The Lord, what? Reigns. Reigns does not say that he reigned or he reigned in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament. He reigned in the 6th century, but not in the 21st century. 
He will reign when he returns. It does not say that. At this very moment, the sovereign ruler of the universe is reigning and he is in control. What does this do for me as a Christian as I read this? It shows me that the God of Scripture is not aloof. That he is not off in some far off distant galaxy like that false god in the Star Trek movie, Shelby, that, that guy in that movie that's in some kind of rock or something. The God of Scripture is here and he is reigning and he is willing to help. Now, I want you to notice something else here. It says that the Lord is robed. He has put on strength at his, as a belt. This tells me that the sovereign ruler, the reign of God, is a powerful reign. It is a powerful reign. You know, it's one thing for somebody to say, hey, I'm in control here. You know? My little brother used to do that all the time. He used to come into the bedroom, hey, I'm in control here. No, I have more power than you. I'm in control. I can say it that I'm in control and I'm stronger than you. So I'm in. But the reign of God, he has all the power at his disposal to reign and control all things. He reigns over nations. He subdues kings. And he can even reign in your personal life over the sins that beset you, over the circumstances that cause you great dismay. God's reign is powerful. You see, as a Christian, when I see this about God, I go to my knees. I go to him. You know, I pray about my kids all the time. All the time I pray about them. I pray for their salvation. I mean, we teach them, but I can't change their hearts. And I go to the sovereign God. Proverbs 21.1, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wheresoever he wills. And I tell the Lord, God, you're sovereign. I can't change these people's heart. You must, Lord. Lord, you're sovereign. Help me. Help my children. Save them. Change their hearts. And I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to tell you, I'm, I'm not going to name any names, but the Lord is working on my kids, man. And it is a beautiful thing. And it's not for me browbeating. He's sovereign. Do you believe that? No, look, little Uli Wooly Bula Kuti is off in the streets somewhere going crazy and you crying your eyes out. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wheresoever he wills. Do you believe that? That's what this relates to us about God, Psalm 93. Not only is his reign a present one, a powerful one, but it has no boundaries. It is a comprehensive reign. Notice here it says, yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. The psalmist is trying to show us the wide scope of God's reign. God rules over everything. Not only is it comprehensive, not only is it powerful, not only is it a present reign, not only is his reign exclusive, it is fixed and eternal. Notice here in verse 2, your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. 
God is not new at this. God is not new at this. God's been doing this for eternity. He's a king. Listen, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Kim Jong-il, they're not going to go to the throne and throw God off of it. He reigns, and he will reign eternally. He will reign eternally. It is an immutable reign. It is an unchanging reign. And he's been doing this for a long time. Now we ask this passage, what does it tell me about God? But here's the, third, here's the second thing. Then we'll get to the third thing. But what does this passage, or how does this passage challenge me? How does it confront me in my sin? How does it call me to action and repentance? Well, in verses 1 and 2, we see what type of king God is. But in verses 3 and 4, we get a picture of man's natural reaction towards a sovereign God. You know, one of my favorite preachers said that he was invited to a church to preach for a week on the attributes of God. And he was a little bit skittish because he had done it before and he had gotten so much flack for it that he, he, he told the pastor that invited him, he said, are you sure you want me to do that? He said, absolutely. So he goes to this church and he preaches and he gets through the grace of God, the love of God, the power of God, the omnipresence of God, and he gets to the sovereignty of God. And he says, a lady walks up to him and says, that's not my God. You see, people want God to be everywhere. They want him, as Spurgeon said, all fashioning his worlds and his stars. But they will not have him on his throne. This is man's natural reaction towards a sovereign God. Notice here this phrase in verse 3. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Expressing the unbridled rebellion and chaos that, that resides within men and that is in our world. Am I making this up? Huh? Well, Demetrius, I don't see anything about people in that passage. Well, am I making it up? Well, this is why you must read the Bible. Because when you read the Bible, it gets smaller and the pieces connect together. And when you read a passage like this, it goes to other passages. And it helps you see, oh man, this is what this is talking about. For example, in Isaiah 17, 12, it says, Woe to the multitude of many people who make a noise like the roar of the seas. And to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing mighty waters. What about Isaiah 57, verse 20? But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up miry and dirt. This is talking about man's natural reaction to a sovereign God. But notice this, the passage's assertion about God. 
Notice here, it says in verse 4, Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. That's not good news to them. If you're in rebellion today, that's not good news. If you're living in sin, that's not good news. Because this scripture is saying that he's greater than your rebellion. This scripture is pointing to that he will deal with your rebellion. You know, as I read this passage, I asked the Lord, Lord, how am I lifting myself up against your sovereign rule? How am I sinning against you at this very moment? The Father here in this passage reminds me that I must deal with sin, that I must kill sin, but he rebukes me for my lack of compassion for those that are rising up in rebellion, my lack of evangelistic zeal. They're in a dangerous place. And we've been called to reach people. The father rebukes me and says, hey, you've become too complacent and comfortable. They have to stand against me, the mighty God. This is what this passage is telling me. This passage rebukes me of my failure to believe that God is absolutely sovereign. That he is working all things out according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11. How many of us have said, man, you know what? Man, if we could just get the right guy in. If we could get the right guy in office. We Christians, man, we'd be free. If we could get the right governor. If we could get the right senator. If we could get the right congressman, and I'm not saying those are bad things. They aren't. But when those good things become God things, they become sinful things. When you're placing your hopes, joy, and value in the things of this world. Listen, I said this before and I'm going to say it again. Read 3 Peter. This stuff's going to burn up, man. It's going away. When you are basing your hopes, joys, and values in this world, man, you are forgetting that God is sovereign and that he is your joy. How many of us have complained against the president? How many of us have looked at this current election and whined about it as Christians? What did I just say Proverbs 21.1 said? The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. What is first? First Timothy say, chapter 2, to pray for those in authority. Why? So that you may lead a quiet and peaceable life, but more so, so that they can be saved. You see, when we do these things, what we're saying, we're not saying it with our mouths. We would affirm the sovereignty of God. On the outside, we're theists. On the inside, we're practical atheists. And what's in your heart, man? Listen, it's going to come out. You can't keep it there. And you're going to tell somebody what you really believe about the absolute sovereign reign of God, and it's sin. 
This passage confronts us in our sin. My lack of prayer for the ungodly. My lack of compassion. My trust in these pseudo-saviors and pseudo-gods. That cannot save me. That cannot do anything for me. But the Lord is sufficient. How is Jesus highlighted in this passage? How is Jesus seen? I want you to understand this. The scripture, I always tell my kids this. They, they, they get a kick. The scripture is not about you, man. The scripture, you can't take one of these verses and say, hey, you know, I'm like Daniel. You know, or I'm like David. I'm going to take five smooth stones of courage, one of courage, one of faith. I'm going to sling it at my my giant of whatever it is, my giant that, that empty bank account or something, I don't know. That's not about you. The scripture, Luke 24, 44, is about Jesus. And so you must read the scriptures Christocentrically. That doesn't mean that every last verse in the Bible, you're just adding Jesus to it. But these verses are going to point to Jesus. They're going to express our need, humanity's need for Jesus. Okay? I want you to notice here something. I want you to notice here. There's a tension here. You have the floods that have lifted up. And then you have this mighty God who will eventually subdue this rebellion. There's a problem. That's bad news. And this is where Jesus comes in. Because you see, the Old Testament says that he's coming. The Gospels say that he's here. Acts proclaim him. The epistles explain him. Revelation says that he's coming again. This is where Jesus is needed. To relieve this tension between the rebel and the mighty God who has the power to subdue the rebel and who will subdue the rebel. Matter of fact, in our own hearts, even as Christians, Romans 7, this indwelling sin has a tendency to rise up against the sovereign rule of God. We need a king, man. We need someone, even as Christians, to come in and take care of this rebellion. And that's where Jesus comes in. Matter of fact, if you go to verse 5, it says, hey, hey man, hey, your decrees are trustworthy. Holiness befits your house. That's not good news for those rebels. Holiness befits... We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, this is bad news for us. Lord, how are we to enter into your house? How are we? You, you, you said in your word, I think it's Psalm 24, who can ascend into the holy hill of God? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. I don't have that. I don't know about you. Jesus is needed. Jesus is needed. And Jesus comes 
Jesus comes for the rebel. He comes for those who are rising up against God. He lives a perfect life for those people. Matthew 5, 17, he fulfills the entirety of the law. The law in its acts and demands and the types and shadows of the law, Jesus fulfills them all for his people. Then he goes to the cross. And in Romans 3, it says that he took the wrath of God. He propitiated it. He quenched it for the rebels. He was buried. He was in the grave for three days. And he rose, Romans 4.25, for the rebels to secure righteousness for them. Romans 5 says that while you were yet enemies, sinners, and ungodly, God demonstrated. That, that, that just makes me happy. <laughs> that one, man, I read that verse and I get happy. That when I was a sinner, man, the Father demonstrated his love towards me by sending his son in that very verse to a rebel. Someone who wasn't even looking for God. This is where Jesus comes in. And here is my last point, the application. How do we apply this to our lives? You know, many of us, we, we, we treat the word as if it's so minor, minuscule. We, we take it, and man, I love Bible reading plans. I really do. I, I do. I love the CBR plan. I think it's great. But even in that, we take it. We, we read it, we get up in the morning, we have our coffee, we read it, and then we just set it aside. And that's it. That's, that's all of it. We meet with our community guys and we discuss it. That's it. But I'm challenging you this morning, as far as application is concerned, that you must devour this book, man. You know, people ask me all the time, they come up to me and they say, man, how do you remember all of this scripture? How can you just quote it like that? And I said, man, have you met my grandfather? He can quote books to you. He's 85. But he tell you the same thing I, I, I tell you. I just read it. I read it all the time. I'm on my deck. I'm reading it. I'm in my garage. I'm reading it. I'm in my car. I'm listening to it. You know what that's called? Meditation. I'm walking down Broad Street with my earbuds in, YouTube, book of the Bible. That's meditation. And you said you didn't have time to meditate. You have all the time in the world. You just don't want to do it. You just don't want to take it serious enough. You don't take it seriously. This is life and death, man. You know... You pray these scriptures. Here's how you apply it. You meditate it. You pray it. You meditate. You pray. You take a portion of this and you think on it. And you mull it over. 
You meditate. You get it into your heart. Or you pray it. You know, I gave you an example earlier about my kids. Lord, you reign. You're powerful in your reign. You're imminent in your reign. I know you're right here while I'm praying. Lord, I have a concern about my kids. I have a concern about this family member. Lord, I'm asking you, have mercy. Because you are powerful, please change their hearts. Please help them. As a pastor, there are all types of things that come across our desk. Some things I don't know how to solve. And you know what I do? I go to the sovereign God with it in prayer. Matter of fact, someone saw me one day walking down Broad Street. I had my earbuds in. I was walking, and, and, and they thought I was singing. Man, I saw you singing up a storm down Broad Street, man. I wasn't singing. That's a decoy. I was praying. Well, man, I can't do that. Well, you know, I keep a journal with me. This is application. I keep a journal. And when I go to lunch, I take that journal and I write out my prayer. See, and you said you don't have time to pray. You don't want to pray. You have all the time in the world. And I guarantee you, meditation and prayer, you do those things after you read the Bible, you'll be strong, man. You'll know God and the people who know God Daniel eleven thirty two, 32, are strong, and they do exploits. That sin that you wrestle with, man, that thing, I guarantee you, will burn away. These are just some of the tools that we can use to read the Bible, and this is why we must read the Bible. Okay? We also have a tool here. This, this, I mentioned it, CBR Journal. I think they're in the back somewhere. I don't know. But it's a great tool. Helps you see Jesus. Helps you see your need for him. Helps you understand and point to God in the passage. Wonderful tool. But I pray today that this has encouraged you that you're motivated, but I'm going to do one better. I pray that the Spirit of God would empower you to read the Word often, meditate upon it, and pray it. Father, we come to you in the, the name of Jesus Christ, and we thank you for your Word. We thank you, Lord, that you have been so gracious to us to reveal yourself to us through your Word. It is a wonderful thing. And we pray that, Lord, that we, we won't just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. In Jesus' name we pray. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Demetrius White at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.